Uh, is the volume okay? Back there, for real? Okay. Um, I know it's a travel day. Uh, I've got a flight mid-afternoon, so you can rest easy. We are not going to be in a position where we can go too long. So uh, we're going to get you to lunch on time, and then you're on your own after that. Um, but I don't uh, intend to be an issue for you there. Um, I really do uh, I really do appreciate all of the efforts on behalf of uh, uh, Brother Tommy in asking me to, to come down here and participate. I've had a wonderful time. It's inspiring to see all the work and uh, collaboration that's gone into uh, restoring uh, the, the grounds here this week uh, or this summer. Um, and for someone who hadn't been down here for a while, I'm uh, duly impressed with many of the upgrades uh, that, that we experienced uh, here. Paul and I have had uh, very comfortable accommodations up there in the, the duplex, I guess it's called. So much of what the Lord Jesus Christ did throughout his first ministry was rooted in the law of Moses. It seems as if most answers he gave not only would serve as great exhortation, but they also would point to where in the law his message had already been revealed. And so it is my hope this morning, brothers and sisters, that we're able to explore this in our thoughts entitled Lessons in Law and the Wilderness. I share with you my personal prayer in working on the topic, and it is that it's accurate that it's beneficial to you uh, as individuals and collectively, and, uh, and that it's uplifting. And so that can we leave here with some uh, encouragement as well. In his epistle in the Ecclesia of Rome, Paul declared, For whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. It is our duty as brothers and sisters in Christ to examine those things that have been recorded for us. And it is indeed our privilege to respond to the high and holy calling in Christ Jesus. The Apostle charges his audience to study the Scriptures that they might show themselves approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. They were written for our learning. This is perhaps no more evident than in the scriptural history of Yahweh's chosen people Israel. Passing through the figurative waters as they separated from the darkness of Egypt, this new nation was presented with a glorious purpose and a lofty expectation as well. The evidence of their turbulent history happened to them for examples or in samples And they are written for our admonition. They are recorded for our learning. Recorded that we might find in ourselves, both individually and collectively, the perseverance to endure our trials and our tribulations. Recorded that we might take comfort in the fact that important lessons regarding God's expectation for His children have indeed been revealed and recorded that we might find hope through our calling. The circumstances surrounding the Israelites wandering in the wilderness and the revelation of Yahweh's divine law are so much more than just important history. They carry with them valuable lessons for believers of all generations, especially ours. The law that was given through Moses not only introduced a godly expectation 
a requirement that they would not be able to keep, thus necessitating a redeemer. But it also contained in it a shadow of good things to come. The gospel message, allegory and exhortation designed to teach the Israelites of the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters and young people, it is our contention that although we are by no means subject to the law of Moses as ordained in the Old Testament, the spirit in which it was given and the desired outcome and the countless lessons that are found therein can in fact be of great benefit to the believer in their study of the scriptures. Our exercise this morning, Lord willing, will be to highlight several aspects of Yahweh's law that was given through Moses, aspects that will provide valuable exhortation for us as we journey in our wilderness of life. Lessons from the wilderness abound in the writings of Moses. Lessons written for us. Lessons that we will draw upon to help prepare us to hopefully bring glory and honor to the Almighty's name in our current probation and through His grace in the age that is to come as well. We know that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction and righteousness. As as they are written for our admonition, we are wise unto salvation to search them out with diligence and truth. So it is a privileged position that we hold as brethren in Christ. Only by the grace of God was a plan set in motion that would bring about the means for flesh to be transformed to spirit in the age to come. It is God who hath saved us and called us with an holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. Seeing that it is for Yahweh's purpose that we have been called, do we fully appreciate our privileged position as his servants? And if we are indeed the elect of God, are we upholding that standard? Wherefore, the rather, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, you shall never fall. Brothers and sisters, are you giving diligence to make your calling and election sure? If so, the promise is clear. Ye shall never fall, or as that word implies, ye shall never fail of salvation. But how do we do this? How do we make this sure? Well, it starts with doctrine. It is doctrine that separates the true believer. Yes, the conduct must reflect the Spirit of Christ. Our light must always be shining before men that by our fruits we would be known. But we know that society has its good Christians, those who conduct themselves in full piety each day. However, they are like the Jews of the first century who had a zeal for God or zeal of God, but not according to epinosis or exact knowledge. Doctrine is the difference. 
However, as lucid as this may seem, a crisis seems to be at hand. The doctrine that was brought to light some 150 years ago is under siege. Our original teachings are being reconsidered as some would apply modern forms of philosophy and academics to the foundation of truth as uncovered by our pioneer brethren. Are we near the tipping point, brothers and sisters? Regrettably, we realize that a departure from the truth of the gospel is the pattern of all history. After a revival of true scriptural understanding, it seems to only take a few generations to elapse before the mixture of truth and error takes root. Romans 8.7, because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. The ideas or even preferences of men begin to gain an audience as these seemingly slight deviations from the truth are no longer rejected for what they are. The society in which we exist doesn't help. It sends a constant message of what it deems to be fair and what it considers to be right. And unfortunately, the ecclesia hears that message. Justice based on man's terms and man's sentiment, not on Yahweh's approval. Justice based on social relations rather than the test of Scripture. The impact of this Gentile philosophy is grim indeed. The truth as it has been revealed is continually questioned. Works are cautiously diminished. As foretold in the apocalypse, the three unclean spirits like frogs are indeed alive and well. That the great day, as that great day of God Almighty approaches. Liberty, equality, and fraternity press upon us in their modern forms of moral and religious promiscuity, equal rights, and unrestrained social acceptance. Is the ecclesia immune from this influence? As feelings and emotions come into conflict with divine commandment, our human nature attempts to blur the lines. It is confusion, as we heard a little bit last night from our brother in his exhortation. It is confusion, just as there was confusion for those who would perish in the wilderness. An uninformed attempt to rationalize personal preference as if a self-serving form of worship does in fact make more sense. We stated a few minutes ago that the circumstances surrounding the Israelites wandering in the wilderness and the revelation of God's law are much more than just important history that we read about. They carry with them important lessons for believers of all generations. So this is the premise upon which our class this morning, our few hours together, uh, has been built. Our objective is really twofold. To highlight several aspects of the Law of Moses that in spirit bear great relevance to our probationary efforts today. And to study a few examples of the lessons taught by Yahweh to the Israelites in the wilderness, and then through exhortation to all of us today. 
I'll share with you up front a list of sources referenced here in preparing these comments. Uh, Law of Moses, uh, naturally, here by Brother Roberts, um, Elpis Israel, several uh, quotes from that, from Brother Thomas, Eureka's, I listed volumes 1, 2, 4, and 5 in the, the Logos, uh, Expositor uh, on Exodus by uh, Brother Mansfield, Story of the Bible, uh, the Gospel Records, this is from uh, some inserts back in the 60s, uh, Wilderness of Life, Straight Words to the Colossians, there by uh, Brother Grocott, and uh, Democracy, which you're probably familiar with um, as well, so that's the uh, that's the short bibliography uh, to to share with you. It uh, reminds me here when we see these books, particularly the ones written by our pioneers, of uh, a quote that comes to my mind from from Mark Twain, and that is, "The man which does not read good books has no advantage over the man who does not read." So, for the young people here, I uh, give you that reminder um, for your consideration. So let's get started. Talk about the value of law. We begin with a question. Why the need for a specific set of rules by which to regulate worship and the interaction of God's chosen people in Israel? Why was there a need? And what about divine law today? Does it still exist, albeit in a form other than the law of Moses? Well, in his book, The Law of Moses, Brother Roberts writes the following. We have that up here on the screen. It reads, How much more excellence, how much the excellence of human life depends upon law. We do not at first realize how much. We grow up under the feeling that the best thing for us is to just, is to be just let alone, to follow the bent of our own sweet will. We learn at last that this is just the worst for any man or nation. Experience confounds false philosophy. Human nature cannot measure up to any divine code. We need look no further than a dark day during the wandering period to pick up a clear scriptural example of the necessity of law. And let's turn to Numbers chapter 16. I'm kind of a turn up the references guy, so it, it sort of helps me to know if you guys are interested or not. So uh, I like to hear those pages flip. Just even just make noise, or if the person next to you is sleeping, just make noise on their Bible or something. That'll keep me encouraged up here that we're, uh, we're um, uh, benefiting here from the experience. So number 16, 1 through 4, you know this uh, example. We'll read it quickly. Observe the month of Abib and keep the... Oops, that's Deuteronomy. I don't even have it right. We're going to get to Deuteronomy here shortly. Now Korah, that's better, the son of Ishar, the son of Koath, the son of Levi, and Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and On, the son of Peleth, the sons of Reuben, took men. And they rose up before Moses with certain of the children of Israel, 250 princes of the assembly, famous in the congregation, men of renown. So important verse there, too, to sort of set the stage of, of what's about to happen. So famous men of renown, 200, over 200 of them. And they gathered themselves together against Moses and against Aaron and said unto them, Ye take too much upon you, 
seeing all the congregation are holy. So there's that. We talked about the uh, frog-like spirits, right? There's equality right right there for us. Um, all the congregation is holy. It's equality, right? They're all holy. Every one of them. And Yahweh is among them. Wherefore then, lift ye up yourselves above the congregation of Yahweh. And note Moses' reaction. And when Moses heard it, he fell upon his face. So he has an immediate reaction to this. Picture it physically in your mind's eye of Moses hearing this comment and immediately falling on his face. He clearly realized this was serious. Was an early claim of equality by man, or that democratic spirit, we could say, in subordination to the divine order based on the feelings of the flesh. An act that was considered rebellion. As we said, Moses immediately knew the gravity of what had happened, for he fell upon his face. Their claim that every one of the congregation was holy introduced that democratic spirit that lies latent in the hearts and the minds of men. A spirit that stands in direct contrast to divine law. In Eureka, Brother Thomas refers to the influence of democracy as such. He says, a restless and revolutionary and progressive spirit. It's from, taken from volume five, volume 5. So I ask as we review this that you think not only of the scriptural spirits or individuals that would manifest these characteristics, and thus we would then glean the lessons associated with those stories and that record, but also that we would try our own hearts and minds to beware of our own nature. Restless, we impatient or agitated or edgy. Do we sense that? Revolutionary for rebellious or insurgent. This is the many new ideas that promulgate throughout our community. And progressive, continuing that thought of evolving or forward thinking. New ideas. ideas. So restless, revolutionary, and progressive is how Brother Thomas described the spirit of democracy. The exhortation for us this morning is found in what happens when divine law is ignored or when it's overruled or perhaps the most common way of dealing with it, rationalized. There exists a true danger that we as believers might be lulled to sleep by the subtle influences of this spirit. Luke chapter 21. Influences from the world in which we live and on the ecclesias in which we operate. And influences that we have been warned against and warned about. Luke 21, we'll just read 34 through 36. And take heed to yourselves, lest at any time your hearts be overcharged with surfeiting and drunkenness and cares of this life. And so that day come upon you unawares. For as a snare shall it come on all them that dwell on the face of the whole earth. Watch therefore and pray always that ye may be accounted worthy to escape all these things that shall come to pass 
and to stand before the Son of Man. So a familiar warning and exhortation that we must not let the spirits of democracy influence our thinking because our thinking drives our behavior. It's not so much the governmental system of democracy, it's that impact that it has that we recognize and we combat. For as we have stated, that spirit stands in direct opposition to divine law. Instead of making sin appear exceeding sinful, it has the opposite effect, which is expressed to us here in Romans chapter 7 and verse 13. Was then that which is good made death unto me? God forbid. But sin, that it might appear sin, working death in me by that which is good, that sin by the commandment might become exceeding sinner or sinful. It is not unlike our day, an age of humanism, that mankind seeks to please, serve, and glorify himself above the Creator, or rather than the Creator. Second Peter chapter three and verse two. I think we've been in this chapter already this weekend. Second Peter three verse two. That ye may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets, and of the commandment of us the apostles of the Lord and Savior, knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers walking after their own lusts. So we see the apostle here expressing what we've been talking about, and that is of own lusts, and saying, in this case, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. As we earnestly contend for the faith that was once delivered to the saints and attempt to manifest in our thoughts and actions a character that is acceptable to God, we face a society that seeks that which is right in its own eyes. And we must guard our ecclesias from that pervasive influence. Our leaders of today, the Lord God Almighty and His anointed Son, are only visible through the eyes of faith. But we can ill afford to dismiss any of the revealed divine law as dated or its principles as those designed for a different dispensation? Can there be any questioning of its value? The democratic spirit stands in opposition to divine law. Thus, for you and for your house, which code will you honor? Let's go back to Exodus, or go to Exodus, chapter 24. We're exploring here briefly in our first class the the value of law. The law given to Moses uh, is referred to as a book. Exodus 24, let's read 3 through 8. And Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord, or of Yahweh, and all the judgments, and all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words which Yahweh hath said we will do. 
And Moses wrote all the words of Yahweh and rose up early in the morning and built an altar under the hill and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the children of Israel, which offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen unto Yahweh. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins and half of the blood he sprinkled on the altar. And he took the book of the covenant and read in the audience of the people. And they said, all that Yahweh hath said we will do and be obedient. And Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant which Yahweh hath made with you concerning all these words. That is the book of the covenant. It states that Moses wrote all the words of of Yahweh, thus the words of Yahweh's law were recorded in a book. In Deuteronomy, we don't need to go there. Chapter 31, we read, And Moses wrote this law and delivered it unto the priests, the sons of Levi, which bear the ark of the covenant of the Lord unto all the elders of Israel. Uh, We will flip over, if you would, to Deuteronomy chapter 30 and verse 9. We see it here expressed as the book of the law. Deuteronomy 30, verse 9. And Yahweh thy God will make thee plenteous in every work of thine hand, in the fruit of thy body, and in the fruit of thy cattle, and in the fruit of thy land for good. For Yahweh will again rejoice over thee for good, as he rejoiced over thy fathers. If thou shalt hearken unto the voice of Yahweh thy God, to keep his commandments and his statutes which were written in this book of the law, and if thou turn unto Yahweh thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul, For this commandment, which I commanded thee this day, it is not hidden from thee, neither is it far off. The Hebrew word translated book is safer, and it means by implication a book, not surprising, but it can also be defined as evidence, a letter, a register, or a scroll. The word comes from the primary root, safar, which means to score with a mark as a tally or a record. So this is the book of the law. So this is the point that we're making. We know that the law given to Moses did in fact serve as a benchmark for the children of Israel. It was a list of requirements that would be tallied and in the end would prove impossible for them to wholly keep in purity and in truth. But Yahweh's law was holy, it was just, and good. It was more than a list of restrictions, limitations, and regulations designed merely to show the Israelites that they were sinful and in need of redemption. We remember that the law was recorded also in that definition of that idea of book as evidence of something. So what was it evidence of? Romans chapter 10 and verse 4. Romans chapter 10, verse 4. I'm going to read this in the, uh, familiar with the complete Jewish Bible. 
translation is uh, particularly helpful here. For the goal at which the Torah aims is the Messiah, who offers righteousness to everyone who trusts. Thus, the book of the law was not so much evidence that God's people were in need of redemption. It was that. But it was evidence more so that the Messiah would be the means by which Yahweh would make redemption from sin available to them. The Hebrew word for law, when used in connection with the law of Moses, we said or we read there, is Torah. We're familiar with that. The word Torah means a precept or statute and certainly refers to the Pentateuch. And it is without question a register of the statutes and commandments that God required his children to meet. But there's important background work that we need to do with this word. And it starts with analysis of that word Torah. A fulfilling discovery awaits us as we do. And you may be familiar with this. You may have some notes in your margin. The root word is yara, which means to flow as water, i.e. to rain, to throw or shoot as an arrow, to figure, and figuratively to point out as if by aiming the figure, to teach, direct, inform, and instruct. So that was kind of a, a long definition. I have it up here on the screen. To flow as water, to throw or shoot like an arrow, to point as if aiming towards something, and to teach, direct, inform, or instruct. They're all verbs which confirm that the law is active in serving its purpose. The law was active in serving its purpose. It's a rich and meaningful definition and one worth taking a few minutes to explore. Deuteronomy chapter 32. So, Brother Paul yesterday referenced the importance and value of natural rain with respect to uh, the conditions in central Texas. And I'm always reminded, even with a fierce thunderstorm like we had on Saturday morning, uh, and I certainly always tell my children never to, to you know, curse the rain because it's symbolic for us also. And we see that here in Deuteronomy 32. So one of the definitions of Yara was to flow as water, i.e. to rain. So what's the connection there? I think you're probably familiar with these verses. 32, verse 1. Give ear, O ye heavens, and I will speak, and hear, O earth, the words of my mouth. My doctrine shall drop as the rain. My speech shall distill as the dew, as the small rain upon the tender herb, and as the showers upon the grass. So rain here equated to doctrine, the word of God falling softly upon those that will hear them and respond to that divine call. Thus, Torah is productive of good, as we know in nature, growth is achieved through the assistance of rain. Okay, a second part of that definition is to shoot or to throw, shoot as in an arrow or to throw. The Torah is something that aims at an objective, and we know what that objective is. We read that. The goal to which the Torah aims is the Messiah. Just as the head of sin was bruised in type by a stone aimed at Goliath, so too does the Torah point towards towards the Messiah and his conquering work accomplished at the climax of his first advent. 
Let's turn over to Galatians chapter 3. So the third part of the definition was to teach or to inform or to instruct. Galatians 3.24 Wherefore, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified by faith. That word schoolmaster refers to a servant whose office it was to take the children to school, by implication, a tutor or an instructor. That's taken from Strong's. All of these are taken from Strong's. Thus the law directed the children of Israel again to Christ. It showed them of Him, informed them of Him, and instructed them of Him as well. Let's consider some of the uh, English translations elsewhere here in, in Scripture. This is of the word Yara found in the Bible. I think we can see the connection uh, to the point we're making uh, in the Law of Moses. So we'll probably go through those a little quick. I guess that's all right. Uh, we're not going to look them up just for time. Genesis 46:28. I guess I'll, I'll read them just for the benefit of the, the tape here. Uh, Genesis 46:28. Yara is translated direct. Exodus 15:25 showed. Exodus 24:12 teach. This is all how Yara has been translated. Deuteronomy 17:10 instruct. 1 Samuel 20 and verse 20, shoot. 2 Kings 12 and verse 2, instructed. Job 38.6, laid as in a cornerstone. Proverbs 11.25, watered. Isaiah 30 and verse 20, teachers. And finally, Hosea 6 and verse 3, reign. So we see sort of the broad definition that this word carries with it. Very much pointing towards something lesson for us to, to glean. These are all verbs help us to fully discern what it is that the Almighty intended His children would glean from His law. The law instructed, it directed, it showed and it taught the Israelites about the Messiah and His redemptive work that was to come. Armed with this knowledge, we too look closely at this book of the law with an understanding at the goal to which it aims. Thus our appreciation of the truth is hopefully intensified as it is that we know the honor of kings to search out a matter. If you're still there in Galatians, flip over a few pages to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews 10 and verse 1. For the law having a shadow of good things to come and not the very image of the things can ever with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the comers thereunto perfect. So Paul understood the purpose of the law. A a shadow of good things to come is, is expressed. We read from the psalmist, Oh, how I love thy law. It is my meditation all the day. To him, the Torah expressed revelation and education. It was the revelation of Yahweh, of his plan and the Messiah. More than just a code of restrictions and limitations that were set down 
for the guidance of man in his relations with God and his fellow man. And so it should be for us. The point is this. When we consider the law of Moses, we must always have at the forefront of our minds this greater purpose underlying its statutes, its ordinances, and its commandments. It is the spiritual principles and typical teachings found in the law that can serve as a touchstone for believers today, a foundation upon which we can build. So let's look at uh, an example or two here to uh, last few minutes of our, our first class. Under the Ten Commandments, laws forbidding stealing and covetousness serve as fundamental examples of how divine ordinances can suggest, uh, given under the law, how these divine ordinances can suggest a continuous standard for God's servants. There are requirements that transcend the Mosaic Age and carry with them a healthy warning to hold fast to the ways of God. Steal, thou shalt not steal, means what we think it does, to thieve, but it also means to deceive. This is from the Hebrew word, so steal also means to deceive. To take something from its rightful owner, it is an act of deception and dishonesty, often with selfish motives at heart. So I think in your now you can think, how does one steal from Yahweh? You know, the principle is never really good. Think back to Absalom. We won't go there, but in 2 Samuel, remember, he stole the allegiance of Yahweh's anointed, away from Yahweh's anointed, and then ultimately from Yahweh himself. In relation to our fellow man, theft brings to light selfishness and dishonesty. Ephesians chapter 4. Those are quiet page turners. That's good. Okay, Ephesians chapter 4, 27 and 28. Neither give place to the flesh. Let him that stole steal no more, but rather let him labor, working with his hands the thing which is good that he may have to give to him that needeth. So we see here some issues addressed indirectly. We have self-control versus the flesh. We have work versus laziness. We have generosity as opposed to greed. So what is the spiritual connection to the Eighth Commandment? There's the definition of steal. I meant to put that up there either to deceive also. So how does one steal from God? Well, leading others astray, leading the flock astray, takes would-be servants away from the Almighty. Is that not stealing? When time and energy is committed to the cares of this life rather than a faithful service of God, does that violate the principles of this Eighth Commandment? You know, it was a scriptural lesson that's revealed throughout the whole history of, of Israel. Perhaps not more clearly than is expressed in Malachi chapter 3. 
which we'll go to now. A warning to brethren of all ages against this type of behavior. You'll remember the priests here, Malachi chapter 3. And we'll pick up at verse 7. Even from the days of your fathers, ye are gone away from mine ordinances and have not kept them. Return unto me and I will return unto you, saith Yahweh of hosts. But ye said, Wherefore shall we return? Will a man rob God? Yet ye have robbed me. But ye say, Wherein have we robbed thee? In tithes and offerings. Ye are cursed with a curse, for ye have robbed me, even this whole nation. So that last phrase is particularly daunting for us. They had robbed, as the religious leaders of that community, they had robbed the whole nation, robbed God of the nation. Robbing God's word of its true significance is yet another way in which one might steal in our day. We can also rob God by not taking care of ourselves. Wasting personal resources on the fruitless pursuits of this world that can leave the believer void of time and energy, thus leaving no capacity for study, for fellowship, for family, or even for the ecclesia. That's another way we can rob God. Thus, here's the point in that example. The original principles that are inherent in the law of Moses, thou shalt not steal, have a parallel to the law of Christ under which we would operate today. So let's look at just one other one and then we'll, we'll break. Thou shalt not covet. We typically associate the idea of jealousy with the term covet. And the Hebrew word used back in Exodus actually implies more than just envy. Covet, kamad, means to delight in or to lust or desire. So when we think covet, we think jealousy. The word means more than just that. Thus, the things in which we delight and the things that we desire form the foundation of this divine caution. And kind of a safe test is, think about how you spend your time. Typically, how you spend your time, where you commit your energy, it's going to give you a pretty good idea of what it is that you really desire. Thus, the things in which we delight and the things that we desire form the foundation of this divine caution. Covetousness draws the attention of the believer away from the things of God. When our focus and desire is diverted from the truth, covetousness becomes, in essence, a form of idolatry. We know, in fact, the scriptures say that covetousness is idolatry. It creates impatience with the truth, impatience with its restrictions, of the divine code to which we adhere. They become viewed as infringements of our personal rights. And our society is particularly ripe with this type of distraction or temptation, if you will. Thus, the focus is on satisfying self. And the servant of Christ must overcome these natural tendencies and characteristics. They must overcome the societal forces that war against the selfless life of a believer. And we'll close by looking at the example of Paul in 1 Timothy 6 and in Hebrews 13. 
looking to Him as our example. 1 Timothy 6, verse 6. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and raiment, let us therewith be content. And then flip over, if you would, Hebrews 13, verses 5 and 6. Let your conversation, or uh, some versions will say manner of life, let your manner of life be without covetousness, and be content with such things as ye have. For he hath said, I will never leave thee, nor forsake thee, so that we may boldly say, The Lord is my helper, and I will not fear what man shall do unto me. So we started a couple minutes early. That's pretty much right at quarter till, so let's go ahead and, and break. Get a good break. We've got a good topic to continue discussion here in the second hour.